happening now, breaking news, new revelations about the frantic 11th hour efforts to keep Donald Trump in office. Recordings detailing how Trump operatives scrambled to get fake elector ballots to Washington in time for January 6th. Stand by for CNN's exclusive reporting. Also this hour, Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley trying to clarify her comments about the Civil War after she failed to mention slavery as a cause for the conflict. The backlash tonight is growing as her Republican opponents are pouncing. Also tonight, American Paul Whelan speaking exclusively with CNN as he marks five years of being wrongfully detained in Russia. He's now pleading for President Biden to do more to try to win his release as if he were the president's own son. Welcome to our viewers in the United States and around the world. Wolf Blitzer is off today. I'm Caitlin Collins, and you're in the Situation Room. This is CNN Breaking News. And I want to get right to the breaking news tonight because we have extraordinary behind-the-scenes details of the Trump team's efforts to carry out a fake elector scheme as then-President Trump was trying to overturn his 2020 election defeat and hold on to the White House. CNN's Zachary Cohen is part of the team behind this exclusive new reporting from CNN. Zachary, what do these recordings obtained by CNN reveal about just how far this 2020 fake electors plot really went? Yeah, Caitlin, these emails and audio recordings really do shed new light on what was really a mad scramble that took place on the eve of January 6, 2021. And they come by way of Ken Chesborough, who's been described as, the, in many ways, the architect of the fake electors plot. And Chesborough has recently sat down with state-level investigators in Michigan and other key battleground states. But when he sat down with the Michigan investigators, he laid out via documents and also in his proper interview how the Trump campaign, including Trump campaign officials at the, at the time, top of the hierarchy were intimately involved in trying to get these fake elector certificates to Washington, D.C. on January 6th, and specifically these certificates from two key battleground states, Michigan and Wisconsin, when they learned that those certificates had been stuck in the mail. Now, take a listen to what Chesbro told investigators in Michigan when he sat for an interview a few weeks ago. At this stage, the Trump campaign is still actively involved. Yeah, that is, the general counsel of the Trump campaign is freaked out that Roman reported that the Michigan votes are still in the sorting facility in Michigan, which doesn't look like they're going to get to Pence in time. So why were they freaked out? Well, these certificates that were signed by the fake electors on December 14th, they had to be physically brought to the floor of Congress on January 6th in order for Mike Pence to throw out the legitimate electors for Biden and replace them with the fake electors for Donald Trump. That was sort of the plan that was in the works. Um, you know, these are the lengths to which Trump campaign officials were really making sure that these certificates got there on time. And it, it's you got to notice, too, that this specific episode is vaguely referenced in Jack Smith's federal indictment of Trump under the section about pressuring Mike Pence to throw out the legitimate electors. So really, it underscores sort of the connective tissue between two key parts of Jack Smith's federal indictment and the allegations of a broader conspiracy. Uh, so they're freaking out, thinking that the fake electors aren't going to make it to Washington. They do eventually make it to Washington. But Kenneth Chesborough also had a lot to say about how involved Republican lawmakers on Capitol Hill were in this last minute scramble to actually get these fake electors to to the vice president. 
Yeah, you're exactly right, Caitlin. He really does describe sort of this handoff process where the certificates exchange hands multiple times, and it's really orchestrated and facilitated by members of Congress. And the goal seems to be, according to these emails and Chesbro, to get the certificates in the hands of Senator Ron Johnson, who I know you've asked about his um, his role and his responses to questions about you know his involvement in the fake electors plot before. You know, Ron Johnson was clearly identified based on these emails and based on Chesbro's proffer interview as the person who they needed to get the certificates to in order to get them to Pence. Obviously, a staffer for Ron Johnson did ultimately contact Mike Pence's office asking if he could bring by these certificates. That offer was rejected, as we know, and Pence ultimately certified the legitimate election results. But again, it does sort of underscore this idea that there were members of Congress involved in sort of a last minute push to make sure these certificates got to D.C. on time for January 6th and in the hands of Mike Pence. Yeah, great to have this reporting. I mean, it is fascinating to read into the details of this. We'll continue to delve into it. Zachary Cohen, good job by you and your team. We have our legal experts here to break all of this down. And Norm Eisen, just reading through this reporting, I mean, what do you make of the fact that it goes into so so many details of how extensive these efforts were, that they were even considering chartering a, a private plane to ensure that these files, these fake electors, reached Washington in time for January 6th. Uh, well, Caitlin, uh, those details are going to be very important for Jack Smith to prove his case for state prosecutors like Fonnie Willis, uh, who uh, uh, has charged this uh, same conduct to prove their case. And the reason those details about the elaborate plan to get all the materials to Washington for January 6th matter so much is they go directly to the intent here. This wasn't just, as it started out, uh, a, um, a preventive measure in case Trump won court cases. This was an active alleged conspiracy to have Mike Pence in Congress block the rightful winner of the election from taking office. And Jack Smith has said that that is uh, uh, a criminal conspiracy. And it's hard to understand how uh, lawyers and other professionals couldn't see why that was wrong. Well, well, Norm, just quickly on that, if, if this is so important to Jack Smith, then what about this detail in the reporting that Kenneth Chesbro's attorneys reached out to Jack Smith's team before he took this guilty plea, and they say that they still have not heard back from them? What does that indicate? Uh, it indicates that Smith has questions uh, about Chesbro's uh, candor, perhaps, that he may not think he's a valuable witness. A witness. Uh, Caitlin, one of the other striking things about this reporting is that uh, Chesbro is pointing fingers at others and saying he feels uh, that he was not well treated, uh, including Mr. Morgan, the Trump campaign's top lawyer. Um, so there's questions about whether Mr. Chesbro is fully accepting responsibility. There may be concerns of that kind that Smith has. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you brought up Matt Morgan because, Michael Moore, I mean, this is a top Trump campaign attorney. And the reporting here essentially seems to indicate that he was more involved than previously known in these 11th hour efforts to get these fake electors delivered to Washington. But when he testified before the January 6th committee, I mean, I remember Liz Cheney and the other members playing that at their hearings. He seemed to, to distance himself quite a bit from this entire effort, saying it was Rudy Giuliani and his team that were handling this. Yeah, I'm glad to be with all of you. I think that's right. And I think really this reporting and this evidence is probably more of a problem uh, for players like Mr. Morgan and other people who are really sort of in the weeds on how this was going to happen. I mean, as far as the 
Trump, the charges against Trump in the Smith case, if you think about Jack Smith trying to prove a drug case, it doesn't really matter if the drugs get there by a Chevrolet or a Ford. And so the details of how they got there, what it does is it gives some color and it gives some context and it explains part of the scheme and the depth of the scheme. It doesn't necessarily change the crime, uh, but it certainly adds more to it. And even though Trump is not really mentioned in the reporting, it's always uh, campaign people and lawyers and such as that. The, the question will be, does it now sully the credibility of folks who have testified before the January 6th committee or in other judicial settings uh, and, and cause some problems there? Or does it simply give Jack Smith another pressure point to get people to come forward and tell what they knew about uh, the, this, uh, this scheme and, and essentially, uh, you know, who was involved and what the plan was and how it was ultimately to be carried out, how high the planning went uh, for this type of activity. Well, and Paula Reed, I mean, we're certainly seeing how at least wide the planning went because Kenneth Chesbrough is naming uh, Congressman Perry, Senator Ron Johnson, the Matt Morgan, the other top Trump campaign attorneys. I just want to listen to what it is that he told investigators about their role in this plot. So he finds Representative Perry, whoever is in Pennsylvania, and who gets a staffer to agree to meet us at like 3.45 p.m. And so, um, and I don't know why why we did, did that. So Mike Brown, you know, I, I had the Wisconsin stuff, Mike Brown had the Michigan stuff. We walked to the Longworth office building and the guy with Perry or whatever his name is and some other fellow uh, that were like uh, staff members of the, uh, of the, uh, in the house uh, took them and said we're going to walk them over to the Senate and give it to a Senate staffer who I guess was a Senate staffer for Johnson and so that's how I don't know why logistically we didn't take it directly to Johnson uh, but that's how we, we, we did it. Paula, what do you make of that testimony and what that reveals to investigators? It's incredibly significant that he is naming U.S. lawmakers here. Now, I do want to note that Senator Johnson insists that his involvement only spanned uh, a matter of seconds. But anyone who may have engaged in potential criminal activity with Ken Chesborough should be extremely worried. Clearly, this guy is talking. He is sharing everything he knows. He entered a plea deal down in Georgia. We also know that he's spoken with prosecutors in Michigan, Nevada, and Wisconsin who are investigating sham GOP electors in their own states. But I think the people who should probably be the most concerned based on what we've heard here are these Trump lawyers because Chesborough seems to have some real bitterness towards them saying that he has, quote, no warm feelings uh, towards them, that they hid things from them, lied to him, and then lied to Congress. They should not be sleeping well. well. It's notable that he is naming these lawmakers. He clearly has it in for these Trump lawyers. So we'd have to support any claims that he makes with evidence. would have to be proven beyond a reasonable doubt. But those folks should not be sleeping well right now. Yeah, and their legal teams certainly are paying close attention to this. Paula Reed, Norm Eisen, uh, Michael Moore, thank you all. Coming up here on The Situation Room, has Nikki Haley jeopardized her new momentum, her latest momentum in the Republican presidential race? New reaction to her failure to mention slavery last night when asked about the cause of the Civil War as she is attempting to clean up the controversy. Tonight, Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley is trying to clean up remarks she made about the Civil War when she failed to mention that slavery was a source of the conflict. CNN's Eva McKend is in New Hampshire, where Haley made these comments last night and is now doing damage control. Eva, uh, first, what did she say? How long did it take her to, to clean up these remarks that she made last night just before, before 9 p.m.? And what has she been saying about it today? 
Well, Caitlin, this all erupted last night in northern New Hampshire when she got an atypical question. Typically, she might be asked about Social Security, immigration, the border, the fentanyl crisis, former President Trump, President Biden. And we typically see pretty rehearsed answers from her on those issues that she might anticipate she'll, she'll get. Uh, this time, though, she was asked about the Civil War. Take a listen to her response. What was the cause of the United States Civil War? Well, don't come with an easy question or anything. I mean, I think the cause of the Civil War was basically how government was going to run, the freedoms and what people could and couldn't do. Thank you. And in, in the year 2023, it's astonishing to me that you answer that question without mentioning the word slavery. What do you want me to say about slavery? Uh, you've answered my question. Thank you. Next question. So you see there, she reflexively did not respond that it was about slavery and it was a bit of a testy exchange. But she's singing a different tune today. Take a listen to what she's saying now. Of course the Civil War was about slavery. We know that. That's unquestioned, always the case. We know the Civil War was about slavery. But it was also more than that. It was about the freedoms of every individual. It was about the role of government. For 80 years, America had the decision and the moral question of whether slavery was a good thing and whether government, economically, culturally, any other reasons, had a role to play in that. By the grace of God, we did the right thing and slavery is no more. But her opponents, Caitlin, still latching on to that initial response, really uh, aiming an attack in, at her that they have long made. Uh, they argue, Governor DeSantis, for instance, uh, Chris Christie, Vivek Ramaswamy, that she does to, uh, says things to try to be all things to everybody. That uh, sometimes when she's talking about abortion, for instance, it might sound different in New Hampshire than it does in Iowa. And so this controversy allows them to continue to make those sorts of arguments. Caitlin. Yeah. And she hasn't stumbled much. So clearly they are trying to take advantage of it. Eva McKent, thank you for that. I want to dig deeper on this with our political experts who are here tonight. And Alice Stewart, Nikki Haley this morning, if you saw her there at that second event in New Hampshire, she came out unprompted and addressed this. She said she wanted to nip it in the bud. But do you think that her comments today have helped? Well, it certainly helped with the people in the room that wanted to give her the benefit of the doubt. But the, the problem is, while this may have been an atypical question that she got last night, it, I don't see this as a trick question. And it certainly was not a hard question. And the answer to this question is unequivocally the Civil War was a uh, result of slavery and trying to end slavery. And she should have further gone on to say, I think slavery is wrong. And I agree with uh, what Abraham Lincoln said at the time in the uh, Gettysburg Address that all men should be created, created equal. And as president, I will make sure and further that idea. She didn't do that. She's making this even worse by saying that this is a democratic plant and even blaming this on uh, President Biden. 
that is not the best way to, to respond to this. And it's certainly not the best way to nip it in the bud because blaming it on Democrats and Biden just encourages them to respond and encourages uh, her op opponents to attack her as well. The last thing you want 18 days out from the, the Iowa caucuses is a lead in the Des Moines Register about responding to this. And certainly in New Hampshire, that's what the news is about today as well. Well, and Tia Mitchell, I think when you look at this from a bigger picture, not even just this one moment, uh, which, you know, Haley supporters will say this was one comment. She didn't handle it well. But when you look at the bigger picture, I mean, she has struggled uh, on this issue in the past. You know, in 2010, CNN K-File did an investigation where she said the Civil War was, you know, a fight for tradition versus change. And she said the Confederate flag was not racist, but part of heritage and tradition. Obviously, Years later, as the governor of South Carolina, she took down the Confederate flag after that deadly shooting at a historically black church in Charleston. What do you make of how she's handled not just this issue in this moment last night in New Hampshire, but overall on the campaign trail? Yeah, it kind of boils down to a point Eva just made, which it sometimes comes across that she uh, crafts her message to fit the audience. And, and quite frankly, she's being perceived as crafting her message on issues of race in the Civil War in ways that can speak to conservatives, but also speak toward the center when she's trying to run more of a general election type campaign. So, you know, when she talks about the Civil War, the Confederate flag in ways that whitewash or gloss over some of the racist implications of fighting to own people, fighting to own black slaves. So you can't avoid the race part of that. You can't avoid the race part that white supremacist organizations use the Confederate battle flag as a symbol. You can't ignore the race implications that civil war and the lost cause became a tool during um, Jim Crow era and later during the civil rights era, a tool to attempt to intimidate black people who were fighting for segregation. Those are just truths. Those are parts of American history. And when she doesn't hit those head on, she's being perceived as trying to speak to audiences so she doesn't make anyone mad. And what I think she's learning today that sometimes when you try that, you end up not pleasing anyone. She accused Maria, this questioner, of being a democratic plant. And we don't know. This person, Eva McKend, later reported, would not identify themselves when a reporter asked for their name after the event. But okay, even if that is true, uh, I mean, does that really change how you answer that kind of a question? No, absolutely not, Caitlin. And in fact, when you try to throw something like that out, it just speaks to how desperate you are and how embarrassed you are about how much you really screwed up that answer. And I think what this has betrayed, Caitlin, is that she not only is completely inauthentic trying to, as Eva said, trying to be all things to all people, but she's betrayed that, in fact, she is as extremist a MAGA candidate as everyone else in that GOP primary to, that wants to delegitimize slavery, minimize racism, take away rights and freedoms, which ironically she was trying to say that it's, it's something that we need to give people, whereas her party is trying to take them away. And I think what it underscores, especially to the independents who might have been looking someplace else other than Trump, they're going to now rethink, well, you know, if I support somebody like Trump, I'm going to support Trump. If I wanted somebody completely different than Trump, she's not it because she had 
the opportunity, perhaps in this specific area, to really differentiate herself from Trump and and her other competitors, and and she couldn't do it. She bumbled it completely. And it's it's also ironic that somebody like DeSantis is coming after her because DeSantis is no better. He's the one who's trying to whitewash well, American uh, African American history in Florida. So it doesn't work for anyone really, but it certainly is not working for her. I'm glad you brought up Governor DeSantis because he has been responding to this today. This is what he said about Haley's comments and her her subsequent attempts to clean it up. I noticed that um, uh, Nikki Haley has had some problems with with some basic American history. Uh, She's asked a very simple question and responded with just a really incomprehensible word salad about this and that. The abolition of slavery was to this day remains uh, the party's top achievement. That's something that, that you should acknowledge and be proud of as a Republican. Now, Alice, obviously what Maria is referencing there is, is DeSantis facing his own issues with Florida's education laws uh, back in his home state earlier on the campaign trail. But him using this moment for a, a Nikki Haley candidate who is very scripted and coordinated and doesn't stumble much on the campaign trail, they are both trying to go after those more moderate voters who, who are not supporting Trump or don't want to support Trump. What do you make of his response to this? Look, uh, here's here's the way that what this boils down to. Nikki Haley has been rising in the polls. She has the momentum at her back heading into uh, the primary and the caucuses. If she was uh, in the toilet in her polling numbers, we would have never heard anything about this after this event. The moment uh, this comment got out on social media yesterday, every other campaign sent this to me and flagged this and said, pay attention to this. It's because she is a threat to these other candidates is why they're talking about it. But that being said, I think they're completely correct to use this as an opportunity to highlight what a blunder this is and how she flubbed this, this answer to this question and take this as an opportunity to separate themselves from her on this issue. But at the end of the day, I think this was a, a, a terrible answer to a to a question that could have very easily been answered. And, and as Tia had mentioned, uh, there are some times that Nikki Haley has been perceived as trying to please everyone and be everything to everyone. But in this situation, uh, there's only one answer to this and what caused the Civil War, and it's slavery. And that's the best answer to this. And uh, unfortunately, she's spending uh, an entire news cycle and probably many more talking about this instead of what people in the live free or die state want to talk about. Thanks to you all. I also want to get perspective on this from the former Republican presidential candidate who is running against Nikki Haley, Will Hurd, former U.S. congressman from the state of Texas. Congressman, I just wonder, what was your reaction when you heard that comment from Nikki Haley last night? Well, well, the first comment I heard was her comments this morning when she's made it very clear that the Civil War was because of slavery. Um, she's made that clear. Uh, she doesn't think slavery is a jobs program like other people that are running in this race. Um, her, her opinion has been very clear. Her record on this is, is very clear. And I think your, your last speaker uh, is correct. People are trying to use this as a thing because she has momentum and that momentum is not going to change. This race is between two people, Donald Trump and Nikki Haley. And Nikki Haley is still the best person, the best Republican to beat Donald Trump. And of course, Joe Biden loves the fact that everybody's talking about this today. 
because because we're talking about this, we're not talking about the crisis at the border where he had to send his Secretary of State, Secretary of Homeland Security, uh, down to Mexico City uh, to beg for help. So so uh, again, Nikki Haley has been very clear on her position on the Civil War and that it was because of slavery. So that's interesting, and I want to get to the border with you in a moment. But you don't have any, you don't see any issue with with how she answered it last night and had the chance to to mention slavery, slavery, but but did not. Look, she said it was for freedom, right? It was for freedom of black people. And 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 again, was it an imprecise answer? Of course. Uh, could the answer have been better? Uh, of course. And but. You know, she's a leader and come in and clarified her, her message today. Uh, that's something that other people in this race ha- have failed to do or they double down on crazy conspiracy theories. So, again, long day, imprecise answer. Uh, she's made it very clear uh, where her position is and her record uh, speaks for itself. I think you've probably had the most generous response to, to her yet on, on how this went. Are you voting for Nikki Haley in this primary? Of course, I, I am. I think she's the the best person um, that's in the race to beat Donald Trump. She has a real momentum. Um, she's the one. And and look, uh, you know, we always talk about how Donald Trump is leading uh, Joe Biden in the polls. Well, Nikki Haley's lead over Joe Biden is even bigger. It's in double digits. I think that's a CNN polling um, that has that has has shown that. So Ambassador Haley, I think, has our, our, our best chance. She's a new generation of leader uh, that the country needs um, and, and is part of the Republican wing uh, that is going to appeal uh, to Democrats that are sick and tired of President Biden. But do you think are you worried at all, given your support for her, that this hurts her her efforts to win over those more moderate voters in the Republican Party, not being able to clearly define a pretty easy question on the first time. Well, she's clearly defined it, right? I don't think this is going to be a, a issue for her. I don't think voters, the, the it's not going to hurt her momentum. Um, and, and she is clear, okay? Uh, you know, miss misspeaking at an event, uh, that was probably the 10th one that she had uh, during the day, but she's made it very clear uh, what her position is. Nikki Haley knows and believes the Civil War was about slavery. She's said that herself. She said that on CNN this morning a couple of times. Um, so I, I think this is onward and upwards and people are going to continue to use something to try to attack her because momentum's on her side. Uh, Democrats are afraid of her. Republicans, uh, her, her Republican opponents are afraid of her. And of course, they're going to try to use anything uh, to try to attack her because she is she is she's continually consistently uh, been rising in the polls. Former Congressman Will Hurd, thank you for your time tonight. Of course. Up next, we are getting news about an Israeli-American woman abducted by Hamas on October 7th who has now been confirmed as dead. And wrongfully detained American Paul Whelan also tonight speaking exclusively with CNN on the five-year anniversary of his detention. Those exclusive comments right after a quick break. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number Smart Beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, during Sleep Number's President's Day sale, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed plus special financing for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. See store for details. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... I sit down with Giles Yeo. It is a problem of our brain influencing the hunger. So hunger is a brain scenario, even though the feeling of hunger comes from your stomach. It's a very new and provocative way of thinking about a condition that impacts more than 40% of Americans. But the thing is, this approach could have big consequences for the way that we treat obesity. Listen to Chasing Life, wherever you get your podcasts. What you're looking at right now is some dramatic new video out of Gaza, a desperate scene that is playing out based on the reporting that we've been talking about for months. Thousands of desperate civilians here are swarming this one relief aid truck that is coming through because they are so desperate to get some of that aid. This, vi- this video that you're seeing here is coming as the Israeli military is warning residents in parts of central Gaza to evacuate immediately as its forces are continuing to target Hamas. For more on this story, we are joined by Elliot Gotkin live in Tel Aviv tonight. Elliot, I mean, obviously we have been hearing about just how terrible and tragic the conditions in Gaza are. And this image just really seems to encapsulate that, just how desperate people are for food, for water, for basic human necessities at this point. That's right, Kayla. Nothing says desperation quite like the sight of thousands, if not tens of thousands of Palestinians engulfing these two aid trucks, the first aid trucks to get to the northern part of the Gaza Strip since the truce between Israel and Hamas broke down on December the 1st. As you can see, thousands of them trying to get to the front of the queue. They were only carrying flour and water, but they were all so desperate for sustenance, that there were actually fights, we understand, that broke out in some parts as people were trying to get to the front of the queue or to ensure that they were not the ones that went without. Now, we know that not enough aid has been getting through into the Gaza Strip. It's far short of where it needs to be. Today, fewer than 100 trucks got through from the Rafah crossing from Egypt into the Gaza Strip. Now, there were hopes that when Israel agreed to allow aid to go directly from Israel into the Gaza Strip through the Kerem Shalom crossing, that this would significantly boost the amount of aid that was going through to Gaza. But according to Kogat, at least, that's the Israeli body that uh, administers, that's in charge of civilian affairs in the occupied West Bank and the Gaza Strip, it says that it was asked to close the crossing today because of logistical issues on the other side of the border in the Gaza Strip. So there were also logistical issues in addition to just getting enough aid through when it's so desperately needed, Caitlin. And Elliot, we're also getting disturbing news tonight about an American-Israeli woman who was believed to be being held hostage. What are we hearing? Yes, we now hear from Kibbutz near Oz, uh, which is where Judy Weinstein was from, uh, that she is now dead. She was believed to be alive, held hostage. We know that she was wounded on October the 7th when she was abducted by Hamas as part of its uh, massacre of October the 7th when it killed uh, 1,200 people inside Israel. It seems now that she died on that day, perhaps succumbing to her wounds. Her husband was also killed that day. Now, Judy Weinstein, 70-year-old grandmother, she had four children, seven grandchildren, 
children. She even leaves her 95-year-old grandmother. She was the last living American female hostage being held in Gaza. There are still, still six male American citizens being held hostage in Gaza, we understand. That's out of 100-plus hostages still being held. And although talks are continuing, uh, attempts, efforts to try to broker another truce that would see hostages released in exchange for Palestinian prisoners, there doesn't seem any sign of that on the horizon. Even President Biden just the other day speaking with the Emir of Qatar to try to help with these talks, push them along, but no signs of another deal anytime soon, at least not yet, Caitlin. Just heartbreaking news for her family, who was surely holding out hope. Elliot Gotkin in Tel Aviv, thank you. Also tonight, we have a CNN exclusive as wrongfully detained American Paul Whelan is now calling on President Biden to use every resource that is available to him to get him out of Russia, saying to act as if he were the president's own son. I'm joined tonight by CNN State Department reporter Jenny Hansler, who spoke with Paul Whelan on the five-year anniversary of his detention. How did he sound? I know that you've been covering the story, you know, every single step of the way. How did he sound when you talked to him and how was he reflecting on this anniversary? Well, Caitlin, in some ways he sounded sort of quietly resigned to the fact that he is marking this very grim milestone of five years in Russian detention. I spoke to him just last week as well, and he he was, you know, very frustrated and exasperated at the fact that he was going to mark this milestone. He thought it was surreal that he was still behind bars in Russia. He couldn't believe that no success had been won to get him out of prison. But today, he had a very clear message about what he wants the Biden administration to do. Take a listen to what he told me. I'm more than past ready to return home, and I'm counting on the U.S. government to come for me, and soon. The time is now to take decisive action and bring this debacle to a close. President Biden, please use every resource available to secure my release, as you would do if your own son had been taken hostage. So we hear a very clear message there, Caitlin, for the president to do whatever it takes to bring him home. He told me he is worried that he is going to be abandoned there in Russia. He was not included in two prisoner swaps that brought home Brittany Griner and Trevor Reed last year. He is worried he is not going to be able to see his elderly parents again. He says he's always already lost friends. He's lost his beloved pets. So today was a very difficult day for him, Caitlin. Yeah, I can't even imagine how difficult it is for his family to, to not only have every day, but to mark this milestone. Jennifer Hansler, thank you for that reporting. Just ahead here, the White House is slamming Texas's new immigration law as incredibly extreme, but now the Justice Department is taking another step, threatening to sue as thousands of migrants are now being apprehended at the U.S. border each day. Tonight, the U.S. Justice Department is threatening to sue the state of Texas over its new immigration law, just making this the latest escalation between the Biden administration and Texas Governor Greg Abbott over the handling of the U.S.-Mexico southern border. I want to get details now from CNN's Priscilla Alvarez. Priscilla, obviously, uh, this is something that the White House was unhappy about. They put out a statement when Governor Abbott signed this new law. But what are they threatening to do as a part of this potential lawsuit? Well, simply put, Caitlin, they're threatening to take Texas to court over this matter, essentially saying 
that enforcing immigration law is a federal responsibility and that this measure by Texas that allows local law enforcement to arrest migrants interferes with the federal government's operations on the U.S. southern border. And this is what they had to say in the letter to Abbott. It goes says SB4, which is what the uh, measure is known, is preempted and violates the United States Constitution. Accordingly, the United States intends to file suit to enjoin the enforcement of SB4 unless Texas agrees to refrain from enforcing the law. So the Justice Department essentially saying in this letter to Texas that they will they will sue to block this measure from taking effect in March if a governor doesn't pull it back. But as you mentioned there, this is part of an ongoing saga between President Biden and the Texas governor over the handling of the U.S.-Mexico border. But now it's starting to play out in the courts. Well, and all this is going on, as we saw Biden's top officials in Mexico yesterday meeting with the Mexican president. I mean, we were waiting to get a joint statement about what progress, if any, was made during that meeting. Was there anything tangible, anything new that's that's coming out of that meeting between those two sides? Well, officials on both sides are calling those talks productive. They're very, uh, there, there aren't many concrete details in their joint statement, but we do know some of what was agreed to. And that includes, for example, cracking down on smugglers who facilitate the travel of migrants to the U.S. southern border, repatriations or deportations, as they're often known, of migrants, as well as decongesting the northern part of the of the border. So essentially uh, taking those migrants who are waiting to cross into the United States further south into Mexico. But more broadly, what they also agreed to was working on the root causes of immigration and their economic partnership, because that's what's key here, Caitlin. They want to keep trade flowing. And so they need to get a handle of the U.S.-Mexico border to ensure that. Priscilla Alvarez, thank you. Coming up here on The Situation Room, a celebrity party with the theme Almost Naked has sparked outrage in Russia. We'll tell you why and how it all went wrong next. Tonight, some Russian celebrities are facing intense backlash for showing up barely clothed at an almost naked themed party as the country is carrying out its ultra conservative agenda as it wages its war against Ukraine. CNN's Bianca Nobolo has the story. Dress code optional, quite literally. An almost naked themed party hosted by a popular blogger in the lead up to the holidays in Moscow has gone viral in Russia. Blogger Anastasia Ivleva organized the party in the heart of Moscow's nightclub district on December 21st. Partygoers showed up half clothed or with barely anything on, with outfits made of mesh, lingerie and other creative materials to strategically cover limited parts of their body. But photos of the almost naked partygoers have sparked outrage across some parts of Russian society. Internal criticism has mounted about how a party of this nature could go ahead as Russians continue fighting on the front lines in Ukraine. Orthodox church officials, pro-war activists and pro-Kremlin lawmakers have all denounced the scantily clad partygoers. Attendees are now facing legal action. A court verdict against the party said the event was aimed at propagating non-traditional sexual relationships. Rapper Vasio, who showed up wearing a sock covering his intimate areas and not much else, has been found guilty of petty hooliganism by the Russian courts. He has been sentenced to 15 days in jail and fined 200,000 rubles, or roughly $2,200. 
Planned New Year's parties organised by celebrities who attended the party have been replaced with other stars. Ivlieva apologised via her Instagram page, posting a 21-minute video asking for forgiveness and a second chance. Other celebrity partygoers have followed suit. In a previous video, Ivlieva claimed the event was an opportunity to showcase photos created during her tenure as the chief editor of the now-defunct Russian edition of Playboy. Ivlieva also faces legal action and hefty fines. A collective lawsuit filed against Ivlieva on Tuesday by 22 people and initiated by a Russian actor seeks compensation of 1 billion rubles, that's $11 million, for moral damages. Backlash against the party comes as authorities in the country are pushing an increasingly conservative and homophobic agenda. Just last month, Russia's LGBTQ community movement was deemed an extremist organization by the country's Supreme Court. Bianca Nobolo, CNN, London. And our thanks to CNN's Bianca Nobolo for that report. Coming up here on the Situation Room, more on CNN's exclusive reporting tonight that reveals recordings which offer an inside look at just how frantic the efforts were in the last days of the Trump administration by his campaign and others to carry out that fake electors plot aimed at overturning the 2020 presidential election. Happening now, breaking news as recordings obtained by CNN reveal how Trump operatives raced to get fake elector ballots to Washington in time for January 6th. This hour, the Michigan Secretary of State will react to our exclusive reporting on the Trump team's final push to overturn 2020 election results from her state. Also tonight, Nikki Haley is doing damage control after the Republican presidential candidate is facing backlash over her failure to mention slavery when asked about the cause of the Civil War. Are voters buying her explanations, plural? Also, there are desperate scenes that we are seeing out of Gaza. Civilians here swarming a relief truck in search of food and water. This is we are getting new reaction to video that appears to show men and young boys detained by the Israeli military and stripped to their underwear. An IDF spokesperson will join us live. Welcome to our viewers in the United States and around the world. Wolf Blitzer is off today. I'm Caitlin Collins, and you're in the Situation Room. This is CNN Breaking News. And we do begin with that breaking news this hour as there are new revelations on just how far Trump operatives went in their frantic final push to try to keep their boss in the White House and overturn President Biden's legitimate 2020 election victory. CNN's Marshall Cohen is part of the team that broke this exclusive report. Marshall, what are we hearing and learning in these recordings about just how deep and, and clearly frantic that fake elector scheme really truly was? Hey, Caitlin, we've known bits and pieces of this story, but now we're getting the full picture. And it comes from Ken Chesborough, who in many ways was the architect of the fake electors plot. CNN has obtained recordings of his recent sit-down interview with Michigan investigators. We've also obtained hundreds of emails that he turned over. They reveal the last-minute scramble on the eve of January 6th to get those fake certificates to D.C. Here's a clip of Chesbro describing what happened when Trump campaign officials realized that the ballots from Michigan and Wisconsin were stuck in the mail. The general counsel of the Trump campaign 
is freaked out that Roman reported that the Michigan votes are still in the sorting facility in Michigan, which doesn't look like they're going to get to Pence in time. So the, the general counsel campaign was alarmed and, and was chartering, well, they didn't have to charter a jet, but they did commercial. This is like, yeah, so this is a high-level decision yeah. to get the Michigan and, and Wisconsin votes there. To, and they, they had to enlist a, uh, you know, a U.S. senator to, to try to expedite it to get it, uh, get it to uh, uh, Pence in time. A high-level decision. Now, remember, Caitlin, they needed to get those ballots to the floor of the House because they wanted Mike Pence to throw out Biden's real electors and replace them with Trump's fake electors. In the end, the campaign didn't charter a jet. Staffers booked some last-minute tickets for commercial flights, and they ferried the ballots to D.C. on January 5th. Once they got to D.C., there were a series of handoffs and couriers that even included some help from Senator Ron Johnson's office. The ballots eventually did reach the Capitol in time, Caitlin, but Pence's team said they didn't want them. They refused to go along with the plan. Yeah, they told Ron Johnson's chief of staff, don't give those to him uh, under any circumstances. You know, as you listen to Kenneth Chesborough in these recordings, Marshall, he seems pretty aggrieved at how his role is being cast, how others are being portrayed. What is he saying? Is he blaming the Trump campaign for, for the legal issues that he is now clearly facing? He is. He's pretty upset, you know, and he thinks he got burned out of all this. And it's true that some Trump campaign lawyers did tell the January 6th committee that they basically washed their hands of the fake electors plot. But the emails that we've obtained show that at least some of them were involved in these 11th hour discussions about how to get the ballots to Pence. Here's Chesborough. We can listen to what he says to Michigan prosecutors telling them basically that he was thrown under the bus. To have the three top campaign lawyers in interviews with Congress claim they pulled out of this uh, on December 11th and I ran off and did it with Giuliani when in fact they were day-by-day uh, day coordinating the efforts of more than a dozen people with the GOP and with the Trump campaign. For them to basically say they had nothing to do with it and it's, it's because me and Giuliani is, is that's what really rankles. So that I could have avoided all this. So it's been, uh, it's been a real lesson in um, not working with people that you don't know and uh, you're not sure you can trust because uh, he really went south on me. So he says he learned the hard way, and that's probably why he's now cooperating with the prosecutors in Michigan, Wisconsin, and other key states. Caitlin. Marshall, this is, this is fascinating reporting. Stay with us because I do also want to bring our law enforcement and our legal experts here into the conversation. And Andrew McCabe, let me start with you because just looking through this reporting and seeing how deep and frantic this effort truly was. I mean, what do you make of the fact that they didn't charter the private plane to get these fake electors to Washington, but they were prepared to do so if they needed to? Well, I think that fact alone, Caitlin, shows you the level of uh, intent uh, and intensity that they were oh, they were applying to this issue. They were prepared to, to get past any potential hurdle. Now, it sounds like ultimately they figured out a way to get the ballots here without chartering a plane. But if you read through these emails, they're really remarkable in how deeply they intertwine the lawyers at the very top of the Trump campaign with Cheesebro and others. The ref there are numerous references to conversations they're having with people in the Republican uh, uh, Party uh, about these issues. So this, you know, you have to kind of 
um, give some credit to Cheese Bro's comments um, and you understand his frustration, this was clearly much bigger, more complicated, a lot of people putting a lot of effort into getting these fake certificates signed by the fake electors into DC just in time. So it's a really fascinating inside look at what happened in this conspiracy. Elliot Williams, what do you make of this? Yeah, I want to pick up on a word Andrew used, uh, and that's intent. And frankly, if there is anything I can teach the world about being a prosecutor, it's how important establishing a defendant's intent is. And you have to prove not just, prosecutors have to prove not just that the thing happened, but that the thing that's alleged or charged happened and that the defendant carried some level of criminal intent, that they knew what they were doing when carrying out these acts. And something, and in a matter about election subversion and the provision of false or fake or faulty electors, uh, taking extreme lengths to move ballots uh, to Washington, D.C., be a plane and chartering jets and so on is, is exactly that kind of evidence. And I'm sure the prosecutors, it, um, it, you know, it doesn't look like anybody else knew what will be charged, I think, on account of the, the revelations that have come out here. But this is certainly valuable evidence. That's point one. And point two is don't email if you're committing a crime that literally... And this is also to Andrew's point, there is tremendous value to prosecutors in uh, electronic media. This this happens in courts all the time. Now, look, I'm, I'm not in the business of giving free legal advice to people, but as a general matter, it's a statement of how valuable electronic information is in court. Well, and Kalen Polance, you're also on the byline on this great reporting. And what, who Kenneth Chesbrough was talking about there when he was talking about people's testimony in front of the January 6th congressional committee was Matt Morgan, who was this top Trump, Trump campaign attorney who, who in that testimony, I went back and reread it, really distanced himself from the fake elector scheme, kind of saying that he handed it off to Rudy Giuliani and people like Kenneth Chesbrough. But Kenneth Chesbrough was saying that he was way more involved than, than he let on in that testimony. That is what Ken Chesbrough says. But when you read the Matt Morgan testimony, he's talking about delegating, shifting the responsibility. So he still has the title of general counsel within the campaign. Uh, but his lawyers say that he stands by everything that he was saying to Congress still at this time. But when you look at the emails that he has with Ken Chesbrough, you see it just escalates quickly, right? He he initially asks, hey, campaign just wants to check in on this. How are the elector certificates going? Where are they? And then you go from that to Ken Chesbro and another person that he was working with, Mike Roman, very quickly realizing we don't have them all. They're stuck in the mail. Do we need to charter a jet? We need to get people on planes right now. And so Morgan looking into this as somebody with the campaign formally at this 11th hour, that really gets this conversation going. And one thing to note about the congressional testimony is that Matt Morgan, several other people who were with the campaign and sort of had split off from Ken Chesbro, Rudy Giuliani, some of these other people that were trying to really contest the election and make these fake electors work for Trump, they were testifying and explaining what they knew, what they believed, and everything. They were under oath with Congress. We have those transcripts. Ken Chesbro, he was taking the fifth. So now that we have these proffers, it's the first time we're seeing Chesbro's world words, Chesbro's retelling, and how he felt about the what happened there. Well, and Marshall, speaking of that, now that he is talking, we are hearing his side of the story. You note in your reporting that Chesbro's attorneys reached out to Jack Smith's team before he pleaded guilty, had a guilty plea in this. He says, or their attorney says that they have not heard back from Jack Smith's team. 
Why do you think Jack Smith hasn't reached out to them? I mean, wouldn't this be helpful to, to his case that he's making, that he's trying to prosecute in Washington? I'm sure Jack Smith's team would love to talk to anybody who was involved. But don't forget, they've already built a very robust criminal case against President Trump, and they did it without any help from Ken Chesbrough. Look, this indictment does vaguely reference this episode in terms of getting the ballots to Washington, D.C. There's one paragraph tucked in. It's kind of vague. It doesn't have all the details that we've been discussing here today. If you look the paragraph before, that's about Donald Trump tweeting about Mike Pence. All he has to do is send it back. The paragraph after is about how Donald Trump called Mike Pence and pressured him in Jack Smith's words to fraudulently reject the Biden electors. So Jack Smith already has a case against Trump. This is part of it. And this whole last minute scramble to get those ballots, it's tucked into a section about Trump and his behavior that day. Yeah, we'll see what kind of a role it could play at a potential trial. Thanks to all of you for that and for the great reporting. Just ahead, we're gonna go live to New Hampshire where Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley tonight is trying to clean up her remarks about the Civil War, what she is saying now that she did not say yesterday. Tonight, Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley says it is a given that slavery was the cause of the Civil War. That is not what she said last night when a voter in New Hampshire asked her that very question and left her scrambling to explain herself today. CNN's Eva McKend is on the ground in the Granite State and was there as she made this comment last night. Of course the Civil War was about slavery. We know that. That's unquestioned, always the case. Nikki Haley playing cleanup today after this exchange with a voter during a New Hampshire town hall Wednesday night. What was the cause of the United States Civil War? Well, don't come with an easy question or anything. I mean, I think the cause of the Civil War was basically how government was going to run, the freedoms and what people could and couldn't do. After not mentioning slavery in her initial response, Haley acknowledging in interviews and campaign appearances the Civil War was about slavery. If you grow up in the South, it's a given that it's about slavery. To me, it was about but freedom. What do you do? It's, it's bigger than slavery. That was such a stain on our history. But what do you take from it going forward? The former South Carolina governor also claiming without evidence the questioner was a Democratic plant. The audience member who asked the question declined to share his full name or party affiliation when asked by reporters. It was definitely a Democrat plant. That's why I said, what does it mean to you? And if you notice, he didn't answer anything. The episode sparking swift blowback from Haley's primary rivals. I just think that this shows uh, this is not a candidate uh, that's ready for prime time. And Vivek Ramaswamy saying, when you try to be everything to everyone, you're nothing to anyone. President Joe Biden also weighing in, saying clearly it was about slavery. Haley's handling of the question also drawing fresh attention to her complicated public posture toward the Confederacy. I say that as a Southern governor who removed the Confederate flag off the state house grounds, and I say that as a proud American of how far we have come. CNN's K-File found in 2010, Haley said this about the Confederate flag. This is not something that is racist. This is something that is a tradition that people feel proud of. 
But in 2015, a shooting at a historically black church in Charleston spurred then-Governor Haley to call for the flag's removal from State House grounds. We heard about the true honor of heritage and tradition. We heard about the true pain that many had felt. The Confederate flag is coming off the grounds of the South Carolina State House. The stumble by Haley comes as she has steadily gained momentum in the GOP primary, with a recent New Hampshire poll showing her securely in second place behind former President Donald Trump, but well ahead of DeSantis and Chris Christie. And Caitlin, this entire ordeal has really brought into focus uh, the way that she has run her campaign. There have been ramped up questions about that. This do no harm strategy, this avoid controversy strategy, clearly in this scenario it has its limits. But listen, there is still a lot of excitement for her here on the ground here in New Hampshire. She uh, is going to be on stage soon with uh, Chris Sununu. We hear him about to introduce her now. Uh, and many uh, residents in this state tell us that they are ready for a new generation of leadership and think she is the right person to confront former President Donald Trump. Caitlin. Eva McKent, thank you for that reporting from New Hampshire. Our political commentators are here. And Kristen Soltis-Sanders said, you and I were on air together as this comment had first happened last night. Since then, Nikki Haley has tried twice now to clarify her comments. It obviously has not appeased the backlash from her critics or her rivals. They're happy to, to seize on this. But what do you make of how she's handled this today? You know, I wish the response had been a little quicker because it was pretty clear right away that it wasn't the right answer. But, you know, with kind of 24 hours to think about it, I've actually gotten even a little more frustrated by her response. And part of that is because rather than going on the defense or even just trying to say, well, it was about slavery, let's move on. I wish she had actually gone on the offense and talked about her record as governor of South Carolina, said, yeah, the Civil War was 170 years ago, but you know what, as governor, I saw that the scars still really show themselves. And I was there to try to help our state heal in the wake of tragedy where nine people were killed at a black church during Bible study. And I, as governor, am good at unifying people. I want to help us heal and move forward. She could have turned it into a rock star moment instead of this kind of cleanup that we're seeing today. Jamal Simmons, I mean, Nikki Haley obviously does have that history as the governor of South Carolina. One thing that she touted today was how she ordered the Confederate flag to be removed from the, the Capitol grounds after that shooting at a histori historically black church in Charleston in 2015. But, you know, she doesn't often mention uh, bringing down the Confederate flag when she's out on the campaign trail. It's not part of her stump speech. What do you make of how what happened last night, that moment, fits into her broader handling of race as a Republican presidential candidate. The questioner asked her about slavery in the end, and her answer was, what do you want me to say about slavery? <laughs> I mean, she's trying to have it both ways. Listen, I did a lot of my political work in Georgia. I campaigned in South Carolina with presidential candidates. She is, she is very well adept. She knows what she's doing. This issue of the Confederate flag, this issue of the Confederacy, the Civil War, slavery, it is very ripe in these states. Nobody is that far away from it. She's trying to have it both ways. That is not leadership. And that's the problem about what hap what's happening right now, is she's positioning herself as somebody who's a truth teller, somebody who's willing to stand up and do it the right way. But when push came to shove, she danced with the same 
part of the Republican Party that Donald Trump is trying to dance with, and it's wrong. And I should note, we're seeing her in Lebanon, New Hampshire, right now. This is uh, her second or third campaign event uh, of the day. She addressed it unprompted at the first one. She has not since talked about it then, but her rivals are talking about it. And so, Kristen, given the fact that she has been very disciplined on the campaign trail, you know, they don't have her take questions from reporters very often at events like this. I mean, what does it say about how she operates, though, in this environment? You know, this is these are a test. You know, this is a spotlight moment when you're a presidential candidate. You're under scrutiny, obviously, much more than when you are not. What does it say about how she and her campaign handled this big picture? Sure, I'm sure she wishes the last 24 hours had gone very differently than they have, but I also am pretty skeptical that this will in any way majorly derail her campaign. I mean, she's already facing huge challenges from Donald Trump. I think the kind of voter who would be offended that she says the Civil War is about slavery was probably not voting for her anyways. So I think at this point, I'm, I'm skeptical that this is going to move polls or even really throw off her momentum a ton. I'm sure she wishes the last 24 hours had been different, but I don't think that this is going to be a huge speed bump in her campaign. It is something that that others certainly tried. Go ahead, Jamal, because President Biden, who you used to work for, was posting about this right after that town hall, saying simply that the Civil War was, quote, about slavery. I mean, it took them two hours, I think, to to respond to this. You know, Donald Trump had the most deft kind of response about this, which is when you won't hear me say that very often, um, but that, that it shows that she might not be ready for prime time. Look, I've, all, I've said a lot. I thought she's the best candidate running. The problem is the whole bunch of them is a pretty weak field. The, the, the thing about these candidates, and let this be a warning to every candidate out there, it doesn't matter what you practice in the game room. It doesn't matter, it doesn't matter what you do when you're trying to do prep. You got to get out on the track and run that car around a couple times and see whether or not it can take the corners. And these these voters who are asking you questions live time and you don't know what those questions are going to be, they're the ones who are going to help predict whether or not you're up to being able to be the free the leader of the free world. Jamal Simmons, Kristen Soltis Anderson, thank you both. Coming up here tonight on the Situation Room, the fighting in Gaza is intensifying as the Israeli military is telling residents to evacuate shelters. Also, the humanitarian crisis only continuing to get worse than it already was. We're going to talk about this and more with a spokesperson for the IDF in just a moment. It's almost difficult to watch these new videos that CNN is getting out of Gaza tonight. As you can see, thousands of civilians so desperate they are swarming a relief convoy carrying flour and water. One man telling CNN that he has not had access to flour in a month and has instead been barely living off of tidbits of rice. Meanwhile, all of this is coming. This scene is playing out as we are hearing that tensions along Israel's northern border with Lebanon are escalating as an Israeli official says time is running out for a diplomatic solution for its fight against Hezbollah. CNN's Nada Bashir has our report. Smoke billowing from the mountains of southern Lebanon, a troubling and now increasingly frequent signal of escalating hostilities. Iran-backed Hezbollah claiming to have targeted an Israeli border city on Wednesday with 30 rockets. This in response to Israeli airstrikes on the Lebanese village of Bin Shbel just hours earlier. There is nothing residents here can do to shield from the growing tensions gripping the embattled border region. Each airstrike bringing with it more fear and more grief. 
this latest attack killing at least three, according to state media, but only one said to have been a member of Hezbollah. This neighborhood, which is in the heart of the city, is supposed to be a safe area. Civilians were sleeping in their homes when suddenly we heard the sound of aircrafts above, and then these houses were destroyed. The situation on the border has long been tenuous, underpinned by a UN resolution adopted following the 2006 Lebanon war, calling for a cessation of hostilities between Israel and Hezbollah. But Israeli officials are now warning of an escalation which could open up a new front in the Gaza war. The stopwatch for a diplomatic solution is running out. If the world and the Lebanese government don't act in order to prevent the firing on Israel's northern residents and to distance Hezbollah from the border, the IDF will do it. Israel's unrelenting military operation in Gaza and the devastating civilian toll has sparked anger across the region. And while the U.S. continues to call on Israel to move towards what's being described as a lower-intensity phase of the war, Israeli officials, including Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, have warned of a long fight ahead, with plans to expand their military operations southwards already underway. Overnight Thursday, the foreboding red glow of fire illuminated the dark winter sky over Rafah. This, the very place civilians have been told to take shelter, a so-called safe zone and a crucial gateway for aid, once again targeted by Israeli airstrikes. In nearby Khan Yunus, emergency teams work day and night to tend to the wounded and to recover the dead. Israel says it is targeting Hamas and has issued renewed calls for civilians to evacuate, but there is nowhere left to turn. People sheltering in schools do not know where to go. First, we were displaced to Nusrat, then to Rafa. We keep on getting told to move from one place to another. For the 2.3 million Palestinians trapped in Gaza, the vast majority now displaced in the south, there are no guarantees of safety. Surrounded by a war which has shown them no mercy and engulfed by a humanitarian crisis of unimaginable scale, leaving little hope for an end to their suffering. Nader Bashir, CNN, London. And our thanks to Nada Bashir for that report. For more on what is happening in Israel, I'm joined now by the IDF spokesperson, Major Daron Spielman. Major, thank you for being here tonight. And we are now hearing from a hospital telling CNN that women and children were part of those killed in an Israeli airstrike on a residential building in Rafah, where civilians told to flee for safety. Can you confirm that the IDF did strike this residential building in Rafah? And do you know how many people were killed as a part of this strike? Uh, thank you for having me, Caitlin. Uh, these scenes in coming from Gaza are incredibly difficult scenes for me. I think for anybody for that's watching them, to see the suffering of the Gazan people. Rafah is supposed to be a humanitarian area. There should be no fighting whatsoever going on in, in the Rafah area. We designated as a humanitarian area. That is where humanitarian goods come into. The issue is, is that Hamas are firing constant rockets from that area towards Israel. We had numerous rockets that have been fired. We've had thousands of rockets that have been fired since October 7th. And many of them, especially today, come directly from that area. 
And I think like any army in the world, if there is rocket fire coming from a location, before those rockets hit your people, you try to disable them and eliminate them. The problem is Hamas are firing them from civilian areas. That is constantly the problem again and again and again in Gaza. But so the IDF did strike a residential building in Rafah. I have no uh, consistent idea about that specific strike. There are strikes taking place in Gaza all throughout the day. And if there is, that information is available, we will announce it. What I can tell you is it's consistent that Hamas is firing from next to mosques and hospitals and schools. We've seen all of their tunnels, one of which I was in yesterday, that their their tunnels go directly under hospitals, as we've shown. They purposely planted their infrastructure in this area way before this conflict began, Caitlin, so that you and I would have this conversation that goes right into their playbook. How can we divert pressure from Hamas, they ask themselves, by burying ourselves into civilians so that the world will pressure Israel to stop? We have got to stop playing into their hands and realize they are the address for everything happening in Gaza. Major, I do want to ask you about other video that, that we have not really gotten an answer from the IDF on. I'm hoping you can provide a more fulsome one. It's from an Israeli photojournalist, and it shows a group of men, but it also shows two young boys who were stripped down to their underwear. They were the other males. They, they appear to be teens and adults. These two young boys obviously are not. Why did the IDF detain these two young boys, and why were they forced to also strip down to their underwear? I can tell you, Caitlin, we have to ask ourselves a question. Why are there two young boys in a lineup with Hamas terrorists in the middle of a football field. Why? This is, again, we have this protocol where we don't want our soldiers to be blown up by explosives that are body wrapped around explosives. We've seen them on children. We've seen them retrofitted for children. And it is common that when before we get close to a Hamas terrorist, we ask them to lift up their shirt and make sure, pull down their pants, that there are no explosives on them. They then get dressed and they leave. But why are these children with Hamas? And this is another example where we can see how Hamas are using civilians and children and schools and mosques. They never should have been there in the first place. I don't want to see these pictures. As a matter of fact, I don't want to see any of these pictures because we didn't want to be in Gaza in the first place. But it's time that we call Caitlin on the world calls on Hamas. Remove yourself from all civilians immediately and the humanitarian crisis will end. But the IDF did detain these two young boys. Do you have information on why they were detained? Were they with Hamas fighters? Because we haven't even gotten that confirmed from the IDF. And is it IDF protocol to to have children also part of this this larger group of teens and adult males stripped down in this stadium? Again, I can tell you, Caitlin, our protocol is to move all civilians out of the way. As we've seen day after day after day, we lose our element of surprise calling on families. Okay, but nothing on these two young boys and children specifically. Move out of the way of the Hamas fighters. What I can see in front of me, and I see the scenes just like you do, This there is a protocol that if we are afraid of explosive devices, unfortunately, as I mentioned, we have found suicide vests that were retrofitted for children. And so they, Hamas, would any of us be surprised if Hamas would send a child with a suicide vest to blow themselves up? I don't think so, because Hamas has no problem killing Israeli children and burning them alive. They have no problem hiding underneath the ground, beneath the Gazan children, and they have no problem sending a Gazan child with an explosive vest. So unfortunately, they should never be there in the first place. But if they are, 
I don't wouldn't want to see my son go close to one of those kids and have him blow himself up. It's an unfortunate reality of the way Hamas plays the game. And again, it's deplorable that they use civilians. We've got to call an end to them doing this. Okay, we just we we've asked the IDF multiple times for for context, for comment on this specific example. And so far, no one has provided us with that more than 24 hours later. I'm still hoping that, that we can get more details on what this is here. But I do want to ask you, Major, about this warning that came from Benny Gantz yesterday, saying that the quote was a stopwatch for a diplomatic solution is running out. Does that mean that Israel is threatening that there will be action in this war on a second front against Hezbollah? I can tell you, Caitlin, that from the 7th of October, we've had 1,500 rockets. I was just up there two days ago from Hezbollah towards Israel. This is a totally unprovoked attack. We never crossed over border. We never initiated a single attack against Hezbollah. But we have an entire northern strip of Israel. You've been to Israel. You know those communities. Tens of thousands of people cannot go home and their homes are being hit by rockets. At the very minimum, we have to enable our people to go home. And the only way that's going to happen is if Hezbollah stops firing. We've been incredibly patient, pinpoint hitting their forces. As but is that said, a yes? This cannot go on yes? longer. The, yes, the diplomatic community, the stopwatch is ticking very clearly, Caitlin. If they cannot rein in Hamas, we will rein in Hamas and we have operational plans to do so. And does that mean strikes or going into Lebanon? What does that look like? Whatever it's going to take from an operational point of view. Obviously, we want to risk our soldiers as little as possible. But Hamas are burrowed into the ground. They have, let's not forget, they are five or six times larger than Hamas. Their arsenal includes uh, you know, GPS-guided weapons that can take down buildings all throughout central Israel. They literally could create an entire terror umbrella over the state of Israel. They've been backed and trained by Iran for decades, and they are a, they are a serious terror army. When push comes to shove, if the diplomatic community cannot take care of this, we will use whatever weapons and means at our disposal to take them out. Major Drone Spielman, thank you for your time tonight. Thank you, Caitlin. Just ahead here, we'll also get reaction from the Secretary of State for the state of Michigan to that exclusive scene in reporting on Trump's inner circle frantically trying to get Michigan's fake elector ballots to Washington ahead of January 6th. More now on our exclusive reporting on the efforts to keep former President Trump in power. CNN has obtained emails and recordings that show a chaotic scramble as the Trump campaign and operatives there were flying copies of the fake elector ballots. Yes, copies, because they were worried the original fake elector ballots from Michigan and Wisconsin wouldn't make it in Washington, to Washington in time for January 6th to get them to then Vice President Mike Pence as he was set to preside over the Electoral College certification. Michigan's Democratic Secretary of State Jocelyn Vincent joins me now. And it's so good to, to have you here. I mean, given the fact that your state has charged these 15 fake electors, what do you make of this reporting that shows just how frantic these efforts were to get those fake electors, the copies of that, to Washington in time, concerns that they might have to get a private jet if they couldn't actually get them there? Yeah, well, thanks for having me. And, and this really underscores the direct line between what individuals were doing in Michigan and the nationally coordinated effort they were a part of and the line between what was happening in Michigan and Wisconsin and the other states 
play to the tragedy at our U.S. Capitol on January 6th. And we've been asked a lot, and I know, I know our attorney general has been asked a lot about why she's focused on the individuals in Michigan, but truly the plan that was at the highest level of government never would have worked had you hadn't had these willing co-conspirators at the local level. So when we're seeking accountability, we have to look at all who are part of this national effort to undermine the will of the people from those in the states like Michigan all the way into the Capitol in DC. Yeah, I mean, it even involved lawmakers, Senator Ron, Jans Ron Johnson, Representative Scott Perry from Pennsylvania. I mean, the efforts to not only get them to Washington, but to get them from Washington into the Capitol, into the hands of, of the former vice president. What do you make of the answer that we got from Senator Ron Johnson, who said, you know, this doesn't matter because Pence, his office didn't ultimately want them. Do you think that changes anything here? Yeah, the fact that this plan failed does not absolve those who were a part of it from the accountability and justice that we need to see. Because we need to ensure, number one, that this is never ha this never happens again, that it's never successful. And we can't forget that it really just came down to people of integrity on both sides of the aisle who refused to go along with this plan that enabled us to ultimately protect the will of the people and enable the transfer of power. And so whether it was a few seconds or, or whether it was a failure or not, everyone who was a part of this plan, this truly anti-American plan to overturn the will of the American people has to be brought to, to justice, have to be held accountable. And we need this wide net to make all of the connections that these multiple investigations are making to ensure we we capture everyone and, and, and address every element of this very extensive coordinated effort to block the will of the people from coming to fruition. On another issue is Trump is now trying to seek a second, uh, a second term in office for, for a third time. We are waiting any moment now to hear from the main secretary of state about whether or not Trump can stay on the primary ballot there. There was a similar challenge that played out in your state of Michigan where the Supreme Court rejected that, ultimately saying that Trump can stay on the ballot there. You are asking that the Supreme Court should move quickly here. What are the consequences and the implications if they don't? Well, in all things, when we're administering elections, we need to provide clarity to the people who are participating in them, the voters, as well as the political parties and election administrators. So with this legal theory, uh, and, and it's, you know, it's a viable theory, one state Supreme Court has adopted it, others have not, it has injected this uncertainty into this question of one candidate's ability to serve under the Constitution. And so as different states work through their legal processes, the way the Constitution actually requires this gets resolved and the, the 14 14th Amendment ultimately interpreted with some finality and clarity and universality is at the U.S. Supreme Court. And the sooner the U.S. Supreme Court provides that interpretation of what was an insurrection, what is aided and abetted, do the facts as they stand here meet any standard the Constitution would require, that type of clarity of all of these ambiguities and unresolved issues can only come from one court. And, it, and the sooner it comes, the more clarity all of us will have on this particular candidate's eligibility moving into the 2024 election season. Yeah, I mean, it's chaos otherwise with all of the states potentially deciding different things. Michigan Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson, thanks for your time tonight. Thanks for having me. Coming up here, it has been five long and excruciating years since Russia wrongfully detained Paul Whelan, an American. Tonight, he has a new message for President Biden. We have breaking news this hour as Maine's top election official has now disqualified Donald Trump from the ballot in that state, an effort that was underway 
CNN's Caitlin Polance has just read this filing and is following this. Caitlin, what is the Secretary of State saying in this decision here? Caitlin, the Secretary of State of Maine is saying that Donald Trump is not qualified to be on the ballot in the primary in the state of Maine after reviewing petitions from different people who came to her and wanted to remove Trump from the ballot. I'm still looking through it, but one of the findings here from the Secretary of State is that Trump must meet certain qualifications to be able to be on the ballot and is finding uh, that he is not meeting those qualifications and thus cannot be on the ballot. Now, this is a big decision from the Secretary of State of Maine. Make no mistake about that. Uh, it is in line with what Colorado appears to have done here as well with the Colorado Supreme Court looking at Donald Trump being on the primary ballot there and saying he couldn't be. But the thing about Maine is that there's going to be a lot of opportunity to appeal this. So the Secretary of State is the person here making that decision instead of the court system. But what happens next is that Trump and others all have the opportunity to go to Maine's court system to appeal this. And all of that can play out in a very short amount of time. We could have some sort of resolution in the courts, depending on how fast the courts move and how fast everyone goes to the court. It could be a decision where we're hearing the Maine's court system also coming in and interpreting the state law within a month or so, basically by the end of January. And so, Caitlin Polance, just because this is breaking news, we truly have just gotten this in. I just want to be clear. The secretary of state here is pausing her decision pending potential action from the Supreme Court. I have not gotten to that point in reading this conclusion yet. I would have to look at that a little bit more closely. Things get very uh, complicated when it comes to pausing rulings. Um, but one of the things with this that we should be very clear about here is that the courts are almost certainly going to be weighing in, both state courts in Maine, because there's all kinds of things in the law for Maine to allow Trump or others to appeal this decision from the Secretary of State. That state court can look at it. And of course, Caitlin, the Supreme Court of the United States is already looking at that petition from Colorado's Republican Party saying, please weigh in because every state has a different process and is making different decisions about Donald Trump being on primary ballots in 2024. I mean, Caitlin, this is fascinating given what happened in Colorado just last week when the, the, court, the Supreme Court there decided to remove Donald Trump from the, pri the primary ballot in a four to three decision. That was unprecedented. We had never seen that happen in our nation's history. Now it has happened for a second time in the state of Maine following the decision by the Michigan Supreme Court to say, you know, we're not getting involved in this. He can stay on the ballot. I, I think what's important here is a little bit of background because for those who haven't been following this closely, there are three complaints here and two of them were based on the same section of the Constitution that that decision in Colorado was, which is, you know, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, basically finding, you know, that Trump, you know, as they did in Colorado, he could not hold office again because of his actions on January 6th. Given the difference here and how this went, not through the courts, but to the Secretary of State, what could that mean for the for the future of the decision that has just been made by the Secretary of State in Maine? Yeah, well, who is making this decision is always going to be a question, especially if the U.S. Supreme Court looks at this. So in the situation in Colorado, it was the Supreme Court of Colorado, the highest court in that state, looking at uh, basically holding a trial to determine Trump was an insurrectionist in their view and also determining they had the ability to take him off the primary ballot under the state's law. Now, 
in all of the other states, including in Maine, there is always going to be a question before the Supreme Court. Can these people even do this? Can a secretary of state make this sort of decision in party primaries related to who voters can cast their ballots for? And so whenever this goes to the Supreme Court, it's very unlikely at the very beginning right now where we're still in this primary process, this first emergency application is before the U.S. Supreme Court, that the Supreme Court, uh, the nine justices in Washington, D.C., that they're going to be making a call on whether Trump is an insurrectionist or not. They're very likely going to be looking first at the sort of thing that the Colorado GOP wants them to look at, saying, you can't remove the ability for voters to vote for certain people. And yeah. that's just the big question that is before the Supreme Court as far as the papers we have right now. Caitlin Pollan, stand by because I know you're reading through this decision. Come back with us with more. We also have Norm Eisen and Michael Moore here with us. Norm, uh, what's your reaction to this, this decision by the main secretary of state saying that Donald Trump cannot be on the ballot there? Well, Caitlin, it's a part of a pattern now. Um, and it it's not just that the Colorado courts uh, came to this decision. Remember the January 6th committee looked at these same issues and also determined that Donald Trump had engaged in insurrection. So I think it validates the concerns of those who believe that uh, the former president is not qualified. Um, as we've talked about, every state uh, uh, addresses this question of how they will uh, or will not apply the 14th Amendment differently under their state laws. Here in this decision that we're still reading, from uh, Maine Secretary of State uh, Shana Bellows, what she says is that Donald Trump's petition to be on the ballot, where he says he's qualified, is not accurate because he's not qualified under the 14th Amendment. Very momentous. Michael Moore, this aligns with what with what Colorado found. Now, you know, what we've been hearing from from Trump attorneys that I was talking to is Colorado's this outlier. They were surprised by that decision last week, caught off guard by it. They do plan to appeal it essentially any moment now. What do you make of this decision from the Maine Secretary of State? Well, I, this is just more fodder for the Supreme Court. I mean, remember that the Secretary of State is one person, and just in the first few pages of her order and her findings, she says, you know, I find this, I find that. And, and so it's one person, and I just don't think the Supreme Court's going to stand by and allow one person who's a partisan elected official in one state somewhere to keep a, a, a presidential candidate off the ballot. And so that's been the issue with these cases going forward. When you compare those cases which have decided that the, the petitions are invalid or against those who uh, say that, uh, you know, this is a petition should be granted and keep him off the ballot, um, there's such a disparity that the Supreme Court will look, have to find some way I think to say this is going to be our standard practice going forward. I mean, you just can't have some presidential candidates can run in some states and some cannot in others. And that's really the issue is the process. Has there been a process? And so yeah. there has not been an adversarial process at all uh, as this thing goes forward. There's the January 6th committee report, but I don't think anybody seriously will say that that process stood up to any cross-examination or anything else. Uh, and so that's that's yep. going to be the issue. Did, did he have a chance to do it? So we'll we'll soon see. 
Yeah, a lot weighing on the Supreme Court. It's hard to see how they don't take this issue up now. Michael Moore, Norm Eisen, Caitlin Polance breaking this reporting for us. I'm Caitlin Collins in for Wolf Blitzer here in the Situation Room. We'll be back at 9 here, 9 Eastern for The Source, as we continue to talk about this breaking news with Donald Trump removed from the ballot by the Secretary of State in Maine. Our coverage continues with Aaron Burnett out front right now. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.